0: And happy hump day to you and yours. Thanks for joining me as always. It is much appreciated. We will start with the uh, Patriots today. Later on the Sean McAdam report that nearly had me throwing furniture around the house during the holiday weekend and uh, a lot of other good stuff. But let's get to the latest on Bill Belichick's future from Mike Giardi at Boston Sports Journal. Uh, Here's what Giardi wrote. Belichick has expressed doubt about his future in New England to the staff at various points over the last few weeks. To the best of my knowledge, and as reported on NFL Network this weekend, Belichick has yet to sit down with ownership. What are we thinking about this? Throw your comment in the comment section. I will get to it. What are we thinking about this report from Giardi? That Belichick has been walking around the building and sharing with some assistant coaches some doubt. Some doubt about his future in New England. That Belichick has been bleak behind closed doors with some people on his staff. I would point out, first and foremost, that a meeting between Belichick and Kraft could happen at any moment. It could be happening today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. At any point from now until the end of the season, you can still have this meeting. And most of the meeting, I would imagine, would cover the same kind of stuff. So there's still time to have this meet between ownership and the head coach. When I look at this and I say to myself, Belichick's walking around, speaking to some of the staff, in sharing his bleakness, quote unquote, if I can, I don't even know if that's a word, uh, sharing his doubt with this staff about his future here in New England. I wonder wait, Belichick's not a robot? Haven't we been built to believe that Bill doesn't talk about this stuff, that Bill doesn't have these conversations with anybody in the building, that Bill would not share his thoughts on his future, whether it was doubt or positivity? that that's not how Belichick rolls. But here's Belichick not being a robot, according to Giardi, talking to some people on the staff about his future and sharing doubt that he will be here in New England beyond this season. Is it something that Bill would do a lot of? Would he be walking around sharing pessimism with everybody? And why would he have this pessimism towards the staff? Who does that help? It doesn't accomplish anything to let Gerard Mayo know that you might be out. It doesn't help anyone going to Bill O'Brien and saying, yeah, you know what? I might be gone after this year. So why would he be sharing this doubt with the staff in the first place? Why is that even a thing? And I would have to imagine if Giardi's report is correct, not every staff member would be privy, right? I don't think Belichick is holding a meeting in the front of the room with everybody on the staff saying, hey, fellas, guess what? I'm as good as gone. Merry Christmas. I don't think that's happening. So who would he be talking to? Well, obviously, his sons. I'd imagine little Belichick's would be involved in these conversations. I would imagine that Gerard Mayo might be involved in a conversation because he might be the guy that's stepping up and replacing Bill. I don't know if Bill O'Brien would be involved, but you have to imagine this is a very small circle. If Giardi's report is correct and Belichick's walking around talking to some on the staff about doubt being here next season, It's only going to be a select few. I could totally buy into the idea that he's talking to his sons about it. I would start there. I don't think it's hard to believe that he's speaking to one or both of his sons about the future and what it might bring, because it also would impact the future of little Belichick's. So that's not hard to imagine. Something else I thought of with Giardi reporting that Belichick is sharing his doubt with some on the staff as far as his future here in New England. Why? Why now? Why would Belichick be having these conversations? Is it just the fact that there's a reality of, hey, we're 4-11, and we stink, and when coaches are head coaches of 4-11 and teams, they are likely gone? Is it just a simple fact of life? And Belichick's looking around saying, we haven't been good this year. I'm out. Is that the whole thing? Is that what begins it? Just the reality of the situation and how dire it's been this year? Another possibility, and again, I don't know. You don't know. Another possibility is maybe Belichick has had prior conversations with Robert Kraft that leads him to believe that if we don't make the playoffs this year, I'm as good as gone. Maybe Kraft, one-on-one with Belichick, set the standard before the season. And so maybe Belichick is going off of some prior conversations that he's had with the ownership group, and he just says to himself, well, I know I've got to make the playoffs and I'm not going to make the playoffs, so I'm gone. Maybe it's prior conversations. Maybe this. What if Belichick wants out? What's the tenor of these conversations, right, that he's having with the staff? Is he telling the staff, yeah, Kraft's going to fire me. I'm gone. Is he telling the staff, yeah, we, we haven't won enough. I'm likely out of here. Or is he telling the staff, I want out. I've had enough. I've been here for almost a quarter of a century. Enough is enough. I'm tired of getting blamed for some things. I'm tired of Robert Kraft. I'm tired of the lack of spending money year to year. Has Belichick had enough? And that's why he's having these conversations. Is it just because others are talking? And Belichick is catching wind of that. As we've said plenty of times on this podcast, Belichick is well aware of everything that's being said about him, everything that has been written about him. He knows, trust me, he knows. So maybe he's just reading the, these reports and he's he's listening to things and he's saying, yeah, I'm as good as gone. Or maybe Bob Kraft's silence has sold Belichick. You've had owners come out the last couple of weeks across the NFL and make statements about their head coaches and their futures, most recently the Jets with Woody Johnson standing by Robert Sala. So maybe Belichick looking around not seeing Kraft stand by him makes him believe that he's likely gone. Gregory Brown jumps in and says, if Bill is not gone, I will not watch this mess again. Time for me to move on. So Gregory's had enough. He wants Bill gone. Uh, You know, I had a a post on Twitter slash X a couple of weeks ago. I had a poll and and 70% of the people, 70% of those people, over 600 people responded, 70% of them, if they had to choose between keeping Bill and firing Bill, 70% want Bill out. I, I think the majority of fans, have had enough. They appreciate and respect what Bill has done. Some of them don't. I think most of them do, but they want to move on. Jason C. jumps in and says, I can picture Bill making an offhand, sarcastic remark. That's about it. Yeah, I could see that. I could see Bill kind of, <laughs> who cares? I'm out of here anyway. He's got that wit, right? So so maybe that's that's been part of the whole situation. Paul C. jumps in and says, it's been four years of crap. Time to move on. Benny Benz, the only thing he is sharing is to share and subscribe to the Nick Cattle's podcast. I don't think he is going anywhere. So Benny Benz thinks that uh, Belichick is going to stay. Yes, give us that thumbs up. Give us that like. Every like means an awful lot to this program. That's how we are going to survive. If you like the podcast, give us the thumbs up. More likes means more eyeballs. We fell just short of the 200 yesterday. Let's try to get to 200 likes today by giving that thumbs up. Don't forget to comment like Jason C and Paul C and Benny's Benz. comment with your thoughts and subscribe subscriptions mean an awful lot as well. All of these things take very little time, but make a huge impact to this show. And if you're listening on Spotify and Apple pods, rate and review something else over the last couple of days regarding Belichick's future stood out to me. And it's from the NFL network. Tom Palacero said, quote, Kraft has been consulting a variety of people about how to move forward. It feels like a decision has been made, right? Let me ask you this. Do you think Robert Kraft is making phone calls to people around the league and people that he trusts? Do you think Kraft is making those kinds of calls during the season if he's not at least leaning strongly towards getting rid of Belichick? I mean, I think if Kraft is making these calls and he's having these discussions, he's almost putting it out on front street. Yes, I'm sure he's talking to people that he trusts and trusts thoroughly. But if you are making these calls, if you're having these conversations about the future of the team and how you move forward, it means what? It means that you're plotting a plan, that you're figuring out what is the next step. Because I would imagine you are at least contemplating or have already decided that you're moving on, that you're making a significant change. I don't think these conversations that Kraft is reportedly having happen unless he feels very strongly about the idea of moving forward without Bill Belichick. And he's asking people that he trusts. Do you think we should get rid of Bill? If we get rid of Bill, how should we get rid of Bill? Does it make sense to keep Bill as a head coach and not a GM? Should I even approach Belichick with those kinds of questions? What names should I be looking at around the NFL? Like this reads to me like Robert Kraft is having conversations with people that he trusts about who could be next in line. Hey, what have you heard about this guy? Do you like this guy as a head coach? Do you think this would be a good move? Do you think it makes sense to bring this guy in as the president of football operations? Is this guy not a good hire? Sounds like those are the kinds of conversations that are happening. Which tells me Kraft is getting his ducks in a row and you don't get your ducks in a row unless you're at least getting ready to pull the trigger on letting Belichick go. It only makes sense. Dima 297 jumps in and says they will never rebuild with Bill as GM. He will always build a team to compete for that year and not for the future. I just I find it impossible to believe that Bill Belichick will be running the football operations. If he's back in New England, I imagine he's back only as a head coach. And I think that has very little chance of happening at this point. It would be crazy. It would be malpractice to allow Belichick to continue to run the draft and to continue to run free agency. It would be one of the worst decisions that Robert Kraft could make. So it just feels like this thing is on the track for Bill to be gone. And, of course, timing is crucial because you, you want to make a move and give the new guy enough time to, to ingratiate himself within the program. Y- if you want to go out and get a new GM beside you know, guys that you already know, like the back of your hand, that are out there, like the Thomas Dimitrovs, you're going to want to have an interview process. If it's Adam Peters in San Francisco, for example, couple guys in Kansas City have been mentioned. If it's one of those people that you want to bring in, to run personnel, you got to have those conversations and go through that interview process. So there is a timing element to this that could be crucial. Now the timing is less crucial if Kraft is just going to promote everybody from within. If it's Gerard Mayo, head coach; Bill O'Brien, offensive coordinator; Gerard Mayo's right hand man as defensive coordinator; maybe Covington gets a bump to D coordinator. You you promote Elliot Wolf in the front office to be the guy to make all the calls, and you move yourself away from the Bill Belichick contingent not totally, obviously, but you're promoting people that you believe can do the job, then timing is less crucial. But if you're bringing outside voices in, if you're going with a complete reset, which a lot of fans want, if you're doing that, timing is crucial. You've got to make these moves in a timely fashion so you can get the best people that you're looking at, the best people that you are considering, you get them into the office to have those conversations about what is your plan, what do you want to do, what quarterback do you like. How do you want to utilize free agency in the 75 plus million we're going to have to spend? And do you really think that one single solitary meeting between Kraft and Belichick would change anything? Would it change anything? I can't imagine one sit down between these two guys is going to change Robert Kraft's mind. If Kraft has moved on to the point where he's talking to other people, what does Belichick say in that meeting that just changes the world? Kraft is calculated. It's a calculated guy. German P says the only reason that Belichick was happy uh, was with Zappers. Yeah, him and Zappy had a nice little uh, a nice little get together moment in the locker room. Kelso H says, I used to trust Robert Kraft in his business decisions. I haven't anymore I haven't anymore since 2019. Worried and uncertain about his decision-making at the end of the season. Nick Cattles for GM. Well, I appreciate it. I am looking for a full-time job if I can get one. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the recommendation. Another note from Giardi in this story, Boston Sports Journal. He says, uh, if Belichick won't survive, I think this is a massive misstep by the Krafts. They could turn the final week against the Jets into a celebration of of all Bills' accomplishments here and guarantee a full house for a meaningless game. Instead, by dragging it out, they risk turning and burning Belichick on Black Monday. That doesn't feel right to me. Look, there are no clean firings. When you fire somebody, there's going to have at least some aspects of it being ugly. Firing somebody's not easy to do. Firing somebody brings harsh feelings. So I don't think you're going to have a clean firing. And Belichick's last game, by the way, I think people are going to show up. (laughs) Whether Kraft has this meeting and it's officially official or not, a lot of people are going to see the game against the Jets in a couple of weeks as Bill Belichick's last game he has ever coached for the New England Patriots. And I can guarantee you a lot of people are going to want to go to that game to say they were there. I was there to watch Belichick's last game. I was fortunate enough to spend my ass on a Super Bowl ticket for the Rams Patriots Super Bowl back a few years ago in Atlanta. And I can tell you, one of the greatest things in my life is the ability to go back and say, I was at Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski's last Super Bowl as a New England Patriot. I will have that forever. And so I don't think it matters if Kraft has a statement out there, if we all know Belichick's going... I don't think any of that matters. If if we believe, and I think right now the vast, vast, vast majority of people believe this, if we believe that this is Belichick's last season with this football team and that's going to be the last game that he coaches against the Jets at Gillette Stadium, that place is going to be packed no matter what. So I don't agree with that point. And as far as a celebration, do we know if Belichick wants a celebration? Everything we've heard about Bill Belichick is he doesn't want celebrations unless the celebrations are warranted. I don't think Belichick would be comfortable with having the duck boats out in front of Gillette Stadium to say goodbye to him. I don't think he'd be thrilled with that. So maybe Robert Kraft, knowing how Belichick does his business, is actually doing business just like Bill would. Kraft is waiting until the season is over. He walks into the office. He drops the hammer. Thank you. This is what we're going to do. Maybe that's why he's approaching it this way. I don't think a statement, I don't think some grand exit is going to make that much of a difference to Bill. Bill cares about one thing. Where is he going to be next year? I don't think he cares about celebrations, especially during a football season. I honestly believe that he's looking at the Jets that week and saying, we got to beat the Jets. Not worried about some kind of, you know, thank you and you were the best ever I don't think he cares about that. That That's for when he retires. We can celebrate Bill Belichick when he's done with football. We don't need to do it during his final week of a four or five win season. I just don't know what that accomplishes other than making somebody feel good. And I don't think Bill Belichick would necessarily feel good about. Him. I mean, what if they wait until after Black Monday and have the respectful goodbye? That's a that's an option. The decision is made behind closed doors. Kraft and Belichick stay quiet. Then there's the statement. And then there's Belichick leaving with all the respect in the world. Maybe a goodbye press conference. However you want to do it. There's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. All right, throw your comments in there. I'm reading all of them. I see all of them. Uh, Your thoughts on Bill Belichick, the report by Mike Giardi that he is speaking with coaches on the staff, sharing his doubt about his future with the Patriots. This idea that The Crafts should handle this differently and and give Belichick more respect as he walks out the door, if that's what's going to happen. I want your thoughts on that. We will get to the NFL draft in a minute because Matt Miller of ESPN released a very interesting story this week at ESPN Insider, ESPN Plus, whatever they call it nowadays. I want to take a look at that. We'll talk about first-round talent versus first-round gradings versus first round picks we'll get to that but don't forget give us that thumbs up if you like what we're doing here it means the world to us just a quick th- click on the thumb means a lot so like comment subscribe and also if you're watching uh, on YouTube join the family subscriptions are huge and if you're listening Spotify Apple Pods uh don't forget to rate and review all right let's get into some draft talk let's get into Matt Miller uh Matt Miller from ESPN came out with his first edition of first round grades Uh, I'm going to make some observations from this Matt Miller piece. Before I do that, Evan jumps in and says, say, Williams, May and Marvin Harrison are off the board. Where would you go? Uh, We'll talk about that. But I think Jaden Daniels has to be uh, near the top of your list. I I think, uh, you know, the offensive tackles that we'll mention here will be on the list. Amar Geddon says, get a GM. The coach is still a top 10 coach. Media keeps pushing this agenda. It's getting old. Um, I think, look, the idea of just getting a new GM is, is it's a simple theory. But is it practical? Would it actually work? Would Belichick allow somebody else above him to make the calls? Would Belichick make it tough on that next GM? The GM brings in somebody who thinks could be you know, oh, this is a third down back and Belichick buries him and puts him on special teams. It's it's not the easiest thing in the world. Bill would still be a lame duck coach going into next year. A lot of problems could be created from, oh, we're just going to push Bill to head coach. We're going to bring in a new GM and everything's going to work out perfectly. All right, let's get to draft talk here. There's a difference between first round picks and first round talent. And what I mean by that is, You're going to have 32 guys drafted in the first round in April, no matter what. Even if there were five dudes who deserve to be drafted in the first round, there are still going to be 32 first round picks. It happens every single year. There's a difference between first round pick, first round grade, first round talent. When you look at this draft, how many of these cats who are going to be drafted in the first round are actually first round talent? How many guys actually deserve to be drafted in that round? How many dudes would be drafted in the second or third round if you didn't have to have 32 picks in the first? Matt Miller of ESPN. And again, this can change with more film and we've got the combine to go through. But Matt Miller released his list this week of his first round grades. And according to Miller, 14 players currently have a first round grade. So almost half of the first round actually should be graded as first-round talents, according to Miller. How does this break up? All right, you've got three quarterbacks. We know two of them, right? We know the fact that Williams is on the list. He's ranked as the number one guy on Matt Miller's list. Drake May is on the list. He's ranked seventh. And Jaden Daniels is the third first-round graded quarterback. According to Matt Miller, he has Jaden Daniels as eighth. Okay, so he's got Williams, May, and Daniels. Of course, there are lots of unknowns. We don't know if Chicago is going to draft a quarterback. We don't know if Arizona is going to draft a quarterback. We don't know if those teams are going to be looking to trade. We have no clue what's going to happen. We don't know who's going to be running the Patriots draft and whether or not that person is going to be uber aggressive if they have to be uber aggressive. We don't know how far May and Daniels could fall. Remember, going back a couple years ago, Mac Jones was supposed to be drafted by the 49ers in the top three. What happened? Well, ownership and the GM turned down Kyle Shanahan. They went with Trey Lance. Jones fell all the way to 15th. A lot of people thought Justin Fields could be drafted in the top five or six. Fields dropped to what, 11th? We have no idea. We're still four months out. But Matt Miller says, Williams, May, Daniels. How about wide receivers? I know a lot of people, a lot of people want wide receivers. Benny's Ben says, if not, Harrison Jr. get the offensive line together. How many wide receivers have first round grades for Matt Miller? We've talked about the wide receiver class in prior podcasts. You can check those out on the channel here. Nick Cattle Show. We've done a lot, a lot, a lot of content here. So how many wide receivers have first round grades for Miller? Marvin Harrison Jr., not a surprise. First on the list. He's second overall. Roma Dunze, who is a wide receiver for Washington. Michael Penix, you can watch him on Monday. He's going to be out there. Dunze is incredibly talented. He's on the list. He's ninth overall. Malik Neighbors, Jaden Daniels wide receiver from LSU. He's on the list. He's 10th. A guy that I absolutely love. Keon Coleman is 11th on the list. He has a first round grade. So when you look at 14 players having first round grades, four of those 14 are wide receivers. So there, there is a lot of depth, a lot of depth Within this draft, when you look at the wide receiver position, there could be as many as 10 to 12 wide receivers drafted in the top 50, 60 in this draft. So I would not be freaking out about not being able to get a wide receiver. If you want a wide receiver where the Patriots are going to pick, whether that's second, fourth, seventh in the first and second round, you're going to find somebody who can be a wide receiver one. You're going to find that guy. Matt Miller says there are four First round talents, as far as wide receiver, offensive tackle, another position, right? As Benny's Ben says, if you don't get a wide receiver, if you don't get Harrison, bring in an offensive tackle, help out that offensive line. There are three offensive tackles that Matt Miller has graded as first round guys. Olu Fashanu from Penn State, super athletic, big dude, still a little bit raw, but people love him. He is the third overall prospect ahead of Joe Alt, my guy from Notre Dame that I've watched play a lot. Joe Alt is also on this list. He's the fourth best prospect ranked by Matt Miller right now, and Tyler Guyton from Oklahoma is 14th. So you've got three offensive tackles, and that's an option. If, if the Patriots like Michael Penix, and they feel like they can get Penix early in the second round or late in the first round, then you absolutely entertain the idea of drafting an offensive tackle then coming back in that second round or late first round and drafting your quarterback. You could also do that at wide receiver. You can draft Marvin Harrison Jr. You can draft the Dunze. You can draft neighbors and then come back around early second round, late first round, and draft Penix out of Washington. So, you know, there's a lot of options here, especially if, if New England likes Pennix, whoever the GM is, if they fall in love with Pennix and they believe that Pennix can be a franchise quarterback. And there are people out there that believe that pundits, draft experts, they do believe Pennix has an opportunity to be a franchise quarterback. If the next person calling the shots here in New England believes that, then you have a lot of different options, a lot of different things you can do up at the top of the first round. So it's going to be fascinating. The last player out of the 14 first-round grades from Matt Miller of ESPN that we haven't covered is a tight end, and you know who that is if you watch college football, Brock Bowers from Georgia. He's extremely athletic. He might be slightly undersized, but he's a better blocker than people think, and the thing about Bowers is he can move all over the place offensively. He can play in the slot. He can play outside. He can line up as a traditional tight end. Very athletic. He's he's, you know, just a a receiving type of tight end. And so Bowers is the final guy. So when you look at the 14, when you look at the 14 players with first round grades, you got three quarterbacks, four wide receivers, three offensive tackles and one tight end. 11, 11 of the 14 first round grades from Matt Miller at ESPN this week, 11 of those 14 first round grades are on the offensive side of the football. Ipso facto, Patriots have a lot of needs offensively. And even if they're not in the top two of this draft, they're going to have more than enough talent to take a look at to try to help this football team out. Michael jumps in and says, what's Bill Belichick expect? He's been in the game a while. He knows how the NFL works. Yeah, I mean, he's got to be looking around. He's got to understand that he's around 10 games under 500 since you know, Thanksgiving of 2019. He's got to see how this season has gone and and how the offense went just totally off the rails. McTagher says, while I agree that the meeting can't wait until Black Monday, I don't agree with Giardi that Kraft's missing the boat. They have time. I agree with that. All right, so there's your NFL draft talk. Lots to think about. We will continue with the draft talk. I'm going to try to squeeze in more this week, but I want to get to Sean McAdams' report over the weekend that almost made me throw furniture. Don't forget to give us that like, thumbs up. Every thumbs up means an awful lot. Like, comment, and subscribe. Spotify, Apple Pods, rate, review, and leave a comment there as well. All right, so the Red Sox missed out on Yamamoto. We did a breaking news podcast regarding that. You can check it out on the channel. And we thought at the time, hey, maybe they'll pivot to Jordan Montgomery. Well, Sean McAdam wrote this over the weekend at Mass Live In the aftermath of the Yamamoto news, one industry official was speculating on how the Red Sox might pivot to find the necessary starting pitching. When I suggested Montgomery as a good fallback option, the official scoffed and offered that even Montgomery would be too expensive for, for the Red Sox current budget plans. Jordan Montgomery is too expensive for the budget plans of John Henry. If this is true, if that executive is right, sell the team. Had enough. I'm tired of going through this. If you can't afford Jordan Montgomery, then you can't afford the Boston Red Sox. What exactly are we doing here? What is the point? You're telling me Montgomery isn't on the radar because you're not willing to spend the cash? Really? You're not willing to spend the money for Jordan Montgomery? You get tens of millions of dollars from the Nesson revenue, right, inching towards 100 million which you own, you get that revenue. You have tens of millions of dollars under the CBT that you can spend. You have $50 million right now at your disposal that still would keep you under the CBT and you don't want to spend money on Jordan Montgomery. Again, if this official executive is true, you're the 10th market in the country, 10th, top 10 market in the country And you can't afford or don't want to afford Jordan Montgomery. By the way, all those going to Red Sox games and visiting Fenway Park, the third highest average ticket price a year ago, according to Statista charts. In June, in June, Statista came out and said that the Red Sox have the third highest average ticket price in all of baseball. And this ownership group doesn't want to spend to bring in Jordan Montgomery. If you're not in on Montgomery, then you never had a chance with Yamamoto. There's no way they were going to spend the money that was needed to bring in Yamamoto. We're talking about an ownership group that is hesitant to spend on Jordan Montgomery, $150 million, whatever it's going to take, $175 million. That ownership group that is hesitant to spend on that guy would have gone full throttle to bring in Yamamoto? Impossible to believe. What are you doing? Are you saving it for next year? Old school style like Scrooge McDuck is John Henry leaping into his golden coins at his house. Will Flinda holding hands <laughs> side by side, jumping into the pool of money. Are you saving it for next year? Like what? And the thing that's so infuriating is that more teams are spending More teams are spending, so the Red Sox are zigging while the rest of the league zags. Chad Jennings of The Athletic wrote, more organizations are exceeding luxury tax. Almost half are at least getting close to it. And relatively new owners of the Dodgers, Mets, have raised the ceiling of what most heavily invested organizations are willing to do. Players' salaries are predictably climbing higher and higher. The Dodgers have been a model franchise for the better part of a decade, and they have fully established their willingness to spend heavily. The past five years also have seen the Yankees, Mets, Padres, Phillies, Rangers, Blue Jays, and Braves make aggressive and expensive moves toward contention. So while the rest of the league is spending money and the true contending teams are spending money, the Red Sox are spending less money than they've ever spent with this ownership group. It's a different way of business. If you are not willing to spend on Jordan Montgomery to make this team better, then you don't deserve to own this baseball team. You don't deserve this fan base. You don't deserve anything other than a thank you for the World Series titles that you did bring when, guess what, you were spending money when you decided to go aggressive after J.D. Martinez because he was the final piece that you thought you needed. You were willing to spend on David Price. You were willing to spend on Chris Sale. You were willing to spend on these guys. That's when you won championships. And then when you stopped that, you stopped winning championships. So while I appreciate the championships you brought to Boston, I had spent my entire life seeing the Red Sox lose. I saw family members in their 70s and 80s and 60s and 50s who just were praying for a Red Sox World Series title. I thank you for that. But over the last few years, this has been embarrassing. We walked into this offseason hoping for Yamamoto in a young, cost-controlled pitcher via a trade. We're now looking at the possibility, if not probability, of James Paxton and Lucas Giolito. Enough said. I appreciate all of you. Like, comment, subscribe. Thanks for joining us on this hump day. We're back tomorrow at 11 a.m. sharp. It's the Nick Cattle Show. You don't want to miss it right here on YouTube. Until then, I bid you all adieu.